So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1390, Living with Intention and Getting Comfortable with Saying No to the Norm with Chelsea Fagan, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. It's really common for human beings to feel defensive around people making other life choices than themselves. Like that's half of internet comments, I feel like, is like, I'm not included in this, or this isn't what I would do and feeling really upset. And I do think that when you are able to respond to them in a way that is not hostile, not defensive, but really sort of, you know, acknowledging what's going on and standing firm, there's not a whole lot you can do to that. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Happy August. Kicking off the month with a fantastic deep dive interview with Chelsea Fagan. She's the founder and CEO of The Financial Diet. I'm sure you've heard of it. She joins to share the behind the scenes of her wildly popular multimedia platform, which helps women talk about money. She shares her thoughts on living with intention, saying no to conventional life choices like having kids and working a corporate job, and why not all financial advice is good advice. From crypto to MLMs, buy now, pay later payment plans, Chelsea has been very vocal about the red flags and other money moves that should give you and everyone some pause. Here's Chelsea Fagan. Chelsea Fagan, welcome to So Money, alas. Hello. Hello to you. It's Friday. We're recording on a Friday. And you mentioned before we were recording that you don't work on Fridays, which is very thematic with what I want to talk about today, which is how Chelsea lives a very intentional life. You've designed a very big life. I want everyone to learn from you. I want to learn from you. And then we'll get into some of the, you know, the economic stuff. First, welcome to the show. I'm sure most people listening know who you are, at least they know the financial diet, but please take a moment and explain a little bit of your role at the financial diet and and, and how far you have really brought this brand. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to be here. I love all that you do. Yeah. So TFD, I'm the co-founder and CEO. Uh, it started as a personal blog in summer 2014. And now it is... A pretty diversified media business. We have 11 employees and partners, and we also have quite a lot that we do in terms of production. We do video, we do events and classes, which is actually the largest part of our business, um, books, newsletter, all that kind of stuff. So I've been grateful enough to, to kind of have it become a media company that I would have wanted to work for because um, most media companies are not great to work for. You know what I love about the financial diet is I, I often say it comes up a lot when we're talking, you know, at work about it or with colleagues. It's like you all have really figured out how to 
capture the zeitgeist, your headlines, the topics you choose. I feel like you're really speaking to me in a language that it's like how I talk to a girlfriend. I don't know if there's a science behind that or if you're all if if there's what, what is the what is the work behind that? Because it, it can it's so powerful. Is it does it just come naturally to your team or is it something that you really tried to hit? Thank you. Well, I think one of the most important things is that most of the team comes from more traditional editorial media background. So the background is not in personal finance. It's much more in, you know, ultimately the attention economy. So, you know, most of the people that work on our editorial are people who are having to prime, you know, news stories for readability and doing viral editorial articles and listicles and, you know, social media content and things like that. So I think for, you know, for most of us, it's the primary skill set that we've brought to the company. Again, on the editorial team, we have people who don't work on this part, but for those who do, whereas I think a lot of personal finance media and especially more, you know, macro financial economic media, the expertise tends to be more based in either you know, finances or journalism, which, you know, journalism is very important. It obviously has an extremely important role. But if, you know, most journalists are focused on doing really good reporting and not necessarily how they're packaging content. I just really appreciate it. I think you really hit it on the nail every time. You started this company in 2014, which was already, we were already, you know, in the digital world and there were social media platforms. YouTube was very much like, you could be a seasoned YouTuber by then. But since then, even more um, outlets and TikTok and all of the things. Um, how has that helped the business or how has it made it more challenging? Um, where, do you, where are most of your eyeballs coming from right now? Again, it's pretty diversified. I mean, for example, I would say between like a social media and a YouTube, we definitely are pretty evenly split in terms of the sizes of our audience. Obviously on YouTube, they're interacting at a sort of higher level of engagement because it's easy to just like click on a social media post. It's harder to watch a 25 minute video, but um, you know, a lot of, a lot has changed in our strategy. You know, we stopped publishing content, text content on the website. We only do newsletter now um, because we, the kind of audience we have is a very sort of like newsletter primed audience. And even though the audience is smaller on a newsletter than a website, it's just a much more valuable audience because of the way they're interacting with the content. It's tough. I'll be honest. Like there's a lot of um, feeling like you're having to kind of keep up with, you know, I'm 33, which is not by any means old, but for some of these platforms, it's older. So like we just brought on, uh, you know, a, a, 20 something to like help us with, you know, our TikTok and things like that, because I'm just not going to be the person primed to do it. And I think for me, the, the hardest part has been kind of making a decision between things that are really worth investing in saying no to things because they're not right for our audience. Like we never had a Snapchat, for example, and I don't regret us not having one. And I do think it's important to sort of understand who your audience is and do what you do really well as a business. But I also think there can be a trap in which you are not being adaptive enough. Kind of riding that balance is is difficult, especially when the goal is for me to not be, me personally, to not be the face of most of what we do. So it's also finding the right person to do these mm. things. 
Saying no to things. I think, I mean, by the way, I think you'd kill. I think you'd crush TikTok. I am 42 and I'm going to start doing TikTok. So if you think you're too old, where the hell does that leave me? Uh, I don't think I'm too old. I just feel like I, it's also part of it is that like, I, I just feel like I need to be on social media less. And I feel like if I get really into it, it's just going to take up yeah. even more of my time and I'll become illiterate. That is the truth. So sticking with this theme of intentionality, because I really see you, Chelsea, as this person. I, I know you a little bit. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you've been very intentional about what you have said yes and no to in your life. And I know no no one's life is a straight path. But what's interesting is that you have said no to things like motherhood and you've written about it. And I want to touch on that a little bit as not just the focus of this podcast, but as an example of how you have designed your life, even as it may not be the conventional way of living your life as a woman, right? And how you have navigated that because... um, I think that's a lot of our audience. I think there are some people in our audience who are like, I don't want to like buy a home, become a mom, work at a company until I'm 65, which has been maybe how previous generations have done it. But maybe first, just tell us like when you were in your 20s, how did you envision your life? Did you Were you very intentional about it then? Or did it kind of just like, you kind of took it as in stride? Um, I think toward my latter 20s, I became a lot more intentional about it. I I mean, I've been with my husband. So on the motherhood thing, I've been with my husband since I'm 22. We were never, we were always pretty like, agnostic leaning toward no on children. So that's one of those things that I was like, I, I sort of had that feeling of like, well, if there's ever like a real sort of powerful calling, I guess, you know, maybe that's something I'm open to. But you know, every year and with every person around me having children, there was such a strong feeling of like, I'm so happy for you. I love this for you. Absolutely not for me. You know, I cannot wait to be an auntie and, you know, be in their life that way. So that was one of the things that just kind of through time and experience, I think, really clarified, clarified itself for me. And it's honestly, interestingly enough, like I have never felt a strong like I've never felt personally sad or kind of disappointed that I'm not living that traditional life or wanting those things. Like I don't feel like I wish I did. What I do sometimes feel though is, I mean, because there are people in my life, you know, who relatives, in-laws, stuff like that, for whom it's way harder for them than it is for me. And it like comes up a lot and that can be unpleasant. So I think if anything, becoming intentional about things like that, big and small, I've less needed to sort of know what I want and more had to get okay. And even sometimes not combative, but definitely standing my ground with other people who will maybe not be so understanding. And I think that even although it has been an issue in my life on the spectrum of what women deal with, with this kind of stuff or what people deal with in this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm sure there are people, for example, who come from, let's say, extremely religious backgrounds or, you know, backgrounds that are just culturally not accepting of different life choices. Like the pressures that they're dealing with are, are tenfold. But I, I, I think often that's the, the harder part of living intentionally. Yeah. This fear of rejection, it sounds like what I'm hearing, a fear of, Loneliness, sometimes when you don't feel like you're a part of a bigger tradition that you grew up with or that society expects of you, those moments where you had to field those 
inquisitions or weird comments? How did you, how'd you do it? I mean, I used to be really defensive, not defensive. Defensive is the wrong word because it sounds like I'm being like, you know, hostile in some way. But I used to, I used to feel that I needed to defend myself, I guess is the right way to put it. And I used to always kind of be on the back heel when it came to justifying. And it wasn't just the motherhood stuff. It was working online for a long time before like TFD seemed legitimate enough or, you know, choosing to stay living in New York City as opposed to getting a house and things like that. I used to definitely feel like I really had to defend myself. And then, you know, especially in the past year or two, I've I've had actual moments where the conversation is like, you know, I'm, I'm happy to kind of talk to you about how you're feeling about this. But I feel great about it. And I don't want to, I don't want it to be a situation where I'm having to explain or defend my life choices. You know, if you're having some feelings about them, you know, I'm, I'm always here to listen to them, but I'm not going to justify my own life to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I mean, I, I once said that when you have people, because I do think it's, it's really common for human beings to feel defensive around people making other life choices than themselves. Like that's half of internet comments. I feel like is like, I'm not included in this, or this isn't what I would do and feeling really upset. And I do feel like there are a lot of people who will be judgmental or will be passive aggressive about people making other life choices. And I do think that when you are able to respond to them in a way that is not hostile, not defensive, but really sort of, you know, acknowledging what's going on and standing firm, there's not a whole lot you can do to that. Like there's not a lot someone's going to be able to really say to that. So I do find that it's pretty effective in ending the commentary. It's almost as though the person asking the question, they have an undiscovered fear or an unexplored fear, which is that they maybe they're feeling insecure in the sense that how can it be possible for someone to not do the thing that I was told that I have to do? You know, maybe they're trying right. to with their choice, but maybe there's a part of them that's like, wait a minute, Chelsea has a great life and she's happy and how what? It could have been different for me. And and so they're what prompts them to ask you, and it could be about and I and like to extrapolate, like I, I find that this this happens when I'm talking, for example, to stay-at-home parents who can get very defensive and start to probe your choices as a working parent. But really the issue is about them. It's not about you. Right. And they're placing their unresolved issues on you because you're living an example of something that could have been for them, but maybe they didn't feel, I don't know what the word is. They didn't feel whether it was brave or safe enough sometimes to do the thing that isn't what is expected of them. I think that's, I've heard a lot that that can be a very similar dynamic between stay at home and working parents. And I think you know, some of it is probably people who maybe would have wanted to be able to do both. But I think a lot of it is also people who I think there for a lot of people, and especially women, I think who are often taught to be very binary in life choices and are given a lot of not great options in a lot of cases. I think mm-hmm. there's a feeling that a lot of people have that their choice, it can't just be the right choice for them. It also has to be the right choice. It right. has to be the correct one, the proper one. And I think especially when it comes to life choices as big as, you know, career, parenting, where you're living, all that kind of stuff. 
if someone else can be equally fulfilled in a choice that's completely different, it really does demonstrate that, well, no, it, it isn't the unequivocal right way to do things the way you've done them. And I think that can be very hard for people. Yeah. I, I wrote down when you said, you know, binary and this idea of like, yes, if you do go and look through the lens through which you look at the world is binary, it's going to be tough. You're going to have a tough life. I'm sorry. To say. <laughs> Um, to bring this back to money and sticking with this theme of sure. saying no to things, I love all your commentary on crypto. And Thanks. Me too. Uh, first of all, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's got to be said. And I love that you're the one who's saying it. And what do you think right now of everything that's been going on with crypto? On the one hand, I feel heartbroken for some of these people who, I mean, I just yesterday I heard um, my husband said, you know, a friend of a friend he put his entire savings in Celsius. And on the one hand, I'm like, I don't know. I, I, so I have mixed feelings. It's like, I don't want to, I wish that this didn't happen to people. But at the same time, it's like, didn't we see the handwriting on the wall? You did. I, I think I did. But I also think that it is very, again, and, and I remember when you, you reached out to me on Instagram after I had talked about it and I felt really just glad to see another person in the PF world feel as upset about it as I did, because I think it's really tough when it comes to, it's like any kind of pyramid scheme, MLM, et cetera. Like people in most parts of the cycle are both victim and perpetrator, right? Like, you know, people in crypto who are able to get out okay, typically it's through bringing other people in under them and same as an MLM. And so there are a lot of ways in which, and even if people who don't do it successfully, like that was the proposition when they got into it, they had to get other people into it. So it's hard to feel completely sort of pure sympathy for it. Again, similar to someone who's in an MLM, but I do have way more sympathy for that than for what I really feel extraordinarily angry about, which is a lot of the people in the personal finance world who promoted this stuff, who, you know, one of the largest personal finance influencers was doing nonstop content on YouTube about crypto and advising his audience to have 10% of their portfolio in crypto. You know, we had... Can we, we name had, that person? Who's that person? I mean, uh, they probably wouldn't mind. They probably like the... No. <laughs> I, I feel bad because... The we name sounds him. like... No, I'm actually like forgetting his last name. Uh, it's like Grant... I oh, Sabatier. Oh, yeah. He's been touting crypto and he's been on this podcast, full disclosure. I know Grant. I actually think he's like a decent guy, but I haven't, I haven't I haven't hung out with him in like, I don't know, at least five to seven years. I can't remember anything before coronavirus. He's one of the OG financial experts that's been talking about crypto, crypto millionaire, blah, blah, blah. I just, I just think like it is irresponsible to then extrapolate and be like, and you can too. No, that's not how it works. No, you can't. And and there are even people in the personal finance sphere, and I, I really can't name names on this one because I just don't want to get into a slap fight, but who were minting their own crypto. Uh-huh. And it's one thing to be like a commentator maybe. And even then, I think it's really irresponsible because people are looking at you for the sort of you know legitimacy of your platform. But especially if you're a financial professional of any kind, if you're a financial expert, if you're credentialed, like to be playing around in unregulated securities in any scenario, I think is just completely a violation of ethics. And I don't even know how it's legal. But 
from a sort of community perspective of the trust of what people were encouraging their audiences to do, I think this has definitely been a really dark chapter for this industry. But it's not surprising because the crypto industry was flooding the personal finance media world with a lot of ad dollars. So I'm sure you've been reached out to about it. I mean, I feel like everyone has. Uh, Yeah. If anyone owns a stock, they can't legally go and tell you to buy that stock without disclosing that they own this stock, right? So why are we not carrying that same regulation over to any sort of investment? I think that um, even if it's not SEC regulated, like you should just know that's the right thing to do. But nevertheless, um, we will see more of this. I mean, Gary Vee just got tens of millions of dollars for an NFT startup or something. I'm like, really? I cannot I like understand the, Gary V's continued popularity is beyond <laughs> baffling to me. That's a whole other show. And I'd love to have you back for that. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about some of the other things we should say no to in the financial world. Um, mm. Let's talk mm-hmm. about buy now, pay later, which I think is going to have quite a moment in the next, I mean, they've been very popular uh, up till now. I think they're going to just skyrocket in this recession and as Apple gets into the game. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. I mean, four installments to buy a bathing suit. When was that ever a, a good thing? I don't understand. And the thing that really ticks me off about buy now, pay later programs is that, well, m- more than one thing, but I think the cherry on top for me is that if you actually do make those four installments on time and you play by the rules, that doesn't go on your credit report. But if you miss a payment, oh, you better believe that's going on your credit report. So it only negatively impacts your credit report. It doesn't positively impact your credit report. So in that way, I feel like it's just really rigged and no one should do it. No, no we were actually just uh, reached out to this morning for a story about it and we passed it to someone else because we're just, we don't have an expert on team who's really like that qualified to speak on it. But I will say that the... I mean, the buy now, pay later stuff is obviously extremely predatory and for the most part, a really bad idea. But I do think that like the almost bigger issue at hand is the TikTokification of shopping, things like fast fashion and just the hyper consumerism. We've done a few podcasts this season on our show that are specifically about that kind of consumerism, which even for you know, myself and you and most of the people on our team, we're slightly too old for the way that a lot of young people are consuming products and shopping and all of that stuff online now. But you know, if you look at the curve of how people are buying things, and you know, obviously, there's setting aside all of like the labor and environmental hazards in buying stuff like this. But if you look at just the sheer amount that people are acquiring and how they're getting their marketing cues, it's just a complete hockey stick up toward, you know, now we're buying a new item almost every week at this point, um, which did not used to be the case. You're right. And I will be the first to admit that this week I rolled out of bed. It was I hadn't even brushed my teeth yet. And um, Instagram sends me this reel. It's this woman who I don't know who she is, but she looks really cute. And she's toting this like really cute bag. And um I bought it. <laughs> oh no. Who goes shopping say, before brushing their teeth? Uh, not good. Not good. But I will say I oh my God. I don't 
I specifically don't buy on Instagram. I will, I have occasionally gone and outside of Instagram bought something I saw there, but I'm like, there's something about doing it within the app that I'm like, I feel like this is a real slippery slope if I start doing this. It is. It is a slippery slope. So much of it is just knowing yourself and setting those boundaries. So how do you recommend we start doing that in lieu of just getting rid of the apps? Yeah. I mean, yeesh. I, I Okay. So one, that thing that's just got to be a rule is just don't have your credit card information like yeah. available in these things. Like that is just got to be a no-go. Um, <laughs> but I will also say, I mean, I actually said this on Twitter the other day, like people are always complaining about how terrible Twitter is. And I used to as well, but like I have so heavily curated and muted so many words and muted so many accounts and unfollowed so many people that like I have Twitter is great for me. I'm only ever, ever really having a great time on Twitter. And I do think you can kind of do the same with each platform. Like I think we often feel much too obligated to expose ourselves to things that we shouldn't be than we really are. And a lot of the research around the ways in which social media and especially platforms like Instagram make us feel inadequate, you know, envious, uh, wanting to consume, all of that kind of stuff. A lot of that just stems from following the wrong accounts. And so obviously, I think if there are people in your own life who maybe you can't necessarily unfollow, but are not making you feel good about yourself, mute them, mute them, get them out of your face. But like, similarly, if you're following an influencer who is showing an extremely aspirational lifestyle that's engendering not great feelings in you, like unfollow that person. It's not the app itself. Like you can follow great Instagrams that are like showing you how to like grow a pepper garden. You know, like you can follow things that are constructive and make you feel good and empowered and all of that stuff. And no one's forcing you to follow the crap. Yes. Curate, 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 curate. I have done that. I have muted a number of accounts and I'll be like, we haven't really seen you on social media, Farnoosh. Like you haven't been, I think what they mean is I'm not liking their stuff. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> I've just been I've just been really busy. Um as we enter or are already in a recession, what are some of the things you want to remind people of as as we now both have gone through this before, although I don't think it's going to be at the level of the great recession. I hope not. I don't think so. Um but I was just talking yesterday to some financial folks who were like, the scare- the headlines are too scary. Inflation's not as bad as it really is. And if you spend too much time reading, then you're going to feel even worse about your personal finances. I mean, is there something in the in the zeitgeist that you want to address? Or is there sometime, somehow the way that the media is narrating this current economy that you don't like? Or any thoughts you have about the recession and how it's being characterized? You know, I feel the same way about this kind of macroeconomic talk as I do about politics, which is that there is a tendency to obsess about the things that you have literally no control over. You worrying about it is not going to be helpful and it's certainly not going to prevent any outcomes. And I think that there's a big difference between staying, you know, informed. You know, maybe you have like a 10 minute news briefing that you listen to every morning, or you read a few articles on a feed or whatever it might be, but obsessing over what is going to happen and the nuances of the terms and whether we're technically in a, in a recession or, you know, whether inflation really is that much of a problem or the unemployment or any of that stuff. It's not super productive. Focus on your own situation, focus on your own, you know, professional life, your own financial decisions. And, you know, especially given the fact that recessions are essentially guaranteed to happen and happen 
cyclically and will happen again. We know that this is inevitable, right? So whether it happens now or a year in the future, even that is really not, it shouldn't be something that we focus on. It's, it's more how, how are we living our day-to-day lives and what are we doing that we actually have control over. Yes. And I was just thinking about the other day, I mean, so well said, Chelsea, like we get, we get so caught up on the semantics, like, is it a recession? Is it not? And I just want to tell people like the only reason there is an official calling of a recession is for the history books so that we can look back in time and be like, well, in this, you know, in this two year period, but the reality is, is that you may already be experiencing a personal recession. And I think I read like 58% of Americans say, yeah, things are bad. And if you want to call that a recession or just bad, like whatever we call it, we call it. But, and I, and I really wish that, you know, those who were in charge, who could actually do something about it at a macro level would acknowledge that and say, yes, things are really bad. Whether we call it a recession or not is not really the point. The point is we need to figure out how to get out of this mess. And we're going to start now. We're not going to wait until the eight people who get into a room, the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Researchers or whatever, like it's eight people, six men, two women. One of the women is married to one of the men. So if we're waiting for these people to figure out our fate, I think they're very (laughs) smart and they have all the reason to be in that room potentially. But like, you see where I'm going with this? Absolutely. Don't wait for the official. Like if you're experiencing financial stress and maybe you're worried about your job. Like if your life today is worse off than it was last year financially, yeah, I think um that's worth something. Some yeah and addressing, you know. You know, and similarly again to the politics thing, like I think a lot of people often confuse reading scary news or feeling stressed out about something with doing something, you know, and as it pertains to any kind of macro issue like let's say, you know, okay, something really terrible is, you know, happening on the Supreme Court. Are you going to be able to change the makeup of the Supreme Court today? No, but there's probably a list of five things that you could do today that would actually have some sort of a beneficial impact. And focusing on those things rather than obsessing over things out of your control, I think in in every sense, but especially as they pertain to, you know, sort of scary macro, you know, political and economic issues and is, is not just important for productivity. It's also important for your mental health. Chelsea, I wish we could talk longer, but I know this is your day off as, as you know, also an intention. I've been so enlightened in this uh, last 30 minutes. I know our listeners have too. And if you want more of Chelsea and her team, head over to TFD, the financial diet. You have a program now. It's really, it's like a monthly membership. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah. So we have the society at TFD. Um, you get exclusive videos every month. We're actually moving uh, in the fall to a model where we're publishing fewer videos on the main channel and more of them for members only. And you get all kinds of, you know, workbooks. Chelsea, thank you so much and hope to have you back again. Thanks so much to Chelsea for joining us. To learn more about her membership program, check out thefinancialdiet.com slash membership. The link is in our show notes. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. Money.